Hi, I'm Rob Bager, and you're listening to Micro-Credentialism, bite-sized stories from the world of digital credentials. Hello, my name is Robert Bager, and I am the digital credentialing evangelist for Concentric Sky. I work on Badger specifically. And today I'm here talking to Dr. Richard Edwards, who's the director of Excite. Uh, this is the Exploration Center for Innovation Teaching, Innovative Teaching and Engagement at UC Riverside. Uh, before his current position, he was the executive director of strategic learning at Ball State University. While at Ball State, he taught MOOCs, which are massive open online courses with Turner Classic Movies. And it is in this project that Dr. Edwards explored the use of badges and micro-credentials. Uh, he works on innovation in higher education, and he works mainly with faculty in terms of both teaching excellence and research into the future of learning. So thank you very much for joining me, uh, Dr. Richard Edwards. Okay, thank you so much, Robert. Great to be here. Right on. So I guess uh, just to kick off our podcast here, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your work? Absolutely. So basically, for the last 20 years, I've really been working on innovation in higher education, specifically on 21st century models for teaching and learning. And so I've really been interested in what's really shifting in the higher education landscape. And even in my current position, where basically Excite is a center for teaching and learning at UC Riverside, I, we really work to rename it as an innovation center and an exploration center intentionally because I believe my role is very much in the same sense of a startup in Silicon Valley. My job is to continue to try to um, investigate and inspire change. And so badges are really interesting to me and micro-credentials because I really feel they're going to be game changers for, for how we um, assess and track and reward learning over the next few decades. And so right now, while there's going to be a lot of efforts in a lot of different ways, um, as will be the case with most innovations like this, I think in a few years, we're really going to start seeing a coalescence uh, of early pilots that start to point towards really provocative dimensions that micro-credentialing and badging uses. And so in my current role at UC Riverside, I'm still very interested in exploring um, the use of tools like Badger Pathway because increasingly um, the way we've been tracking achievements through the level of say course grades that become transcriptable actions only tell part of the picture of student learning and achievement. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation and delving into maybe some of the projects I've worked on in the past as well as things I have on the runway for um, next steps. Cool, yeah. Um, so I guess just to dig into that a little bit more, um, what, is a, what are some things that got you interested in digital credentialing to begin with? Like why, why did you uh, feel, why, why were you inspired to include yeah. this in some of your instructional strategies? So it really goes back. See, so the part that's always fun is those of us who work in innovation, especially around, say, educational technology, which tends to be shortened to ed tech um, when we're talking with colleagues, is all of these trajectories have really long timelines. It's not like any of us who are early adopters of badging, you know, found badging as our first project. So really where I think the original epicenter of my interest was in very early um, projects that I was doing back in, say, uh, 2006 to 2009, I really think they started to plant the seeds for a different type of credentialing system. Back in 06 to 09, I was really exploring the role of virtual worlds in learning, and I was also looking at social media groups and learning. And back in 08, if we were doing this podcast, we would have been talking about my use of a Ning group in an online course to start to try to bring in um, social media activities as part of an accredited curriculum. Um, 
and what happened is as I started to explore virtual worlds, which basically is just code for doing some classes in Second Life, and then a Ning group, which is really just code for early versions of um, groups that uh, social media groups that have really been superseded by the role of Twitter and Facebook, um, really was starting to point out to me that we weren't capturing all of the learning outcomes. We didn't really have rubrics, metrics, and um, grading schemes that really seemed like they fit this more flexible type of learning environment in which I wasn't really designing a linear 15-week curriculum anymore as much as trying to create opportunities for individuals, uh, for lack of a better word, to choose their own learning path. Um, and as this started to happen, um, the first metaphor that came up in my head was this idea of how do we start to lay out a breadcrumb trail? I really was starting to get interested when a student had a learning insight, instead of just going like, wow, that's cool. Somehow this scaffold, this framework energized some learning. I thought it was starting to get very interesting that as more, um, as, as some of the logics started to shift from a standard syllabus that really led towards very um, clear learning outcomes in which you could start to really mechanically connect week one to a final and have it be a um, progression that is very common that has centuries of proof. I started to notice that I had to pay attention to the tangent, to the divergent, to the um, unexpected. And as I started to try to account for all of that, then it was right around that time that um, really you started to hear the first murmurs of badging. Um, and for me, the first murmurs of this were really coming out of the Mozilla Collective and the early versions of the Mozilla Backpack. What really gained traction for me is I was asked in 2011 to try to help coordinate as a strategic planner a professional educators network to bring together 57,000 um, K-12 teachers in the state of Indiana and start to have them do professional development modules. And the question was, how are we gonna track this? And the first thought was, we'll just track this the way we've always tracked mm -hmm. other types of continuing education units. The part that started to become apparent to me in 2011, but there just was no traction for badges back then, um, was we needed some different type of system because in a lot of ways, as we're looking at these professional development opportunities, I started to really see where things were um, beginning to head as well as other members of my team. I mean, it just was feeling very logical in that time period that we really were no longer talking about courses per se, but more modules. And then that modularity started to get me interested in how do you track modularity? So it's not just getting an A for a course. What if you're starting to just get graded and that grade remained even if the final grade of say an entire professional development element um, lowered, you should still get an A if your public communication module was exceptional. And maybe a sequence of five, three of them you kind of flamed out on. And I started to ask myself questions about where, does, where do these shifting online designs, do we have assessment protocols that are equal to them? So it became an open question. And then back in 2015, when I started the initiative with Turner Classic Movies, we ended up teaching over 55,000 learners worldwide in four different courses. And in that course, I definitely started to put into play some of my desires for greater um, learner control over the um, experience. And that's where I started to partner back then with Wayne Skipper, who is the uh, individual whose company has you know, built uh, Badger and then Badger Pathways. And he encouraged me to be very playful. And I think together we kind of just had this moment of, well, this is a free online learning um, example with Turner Classic Movies, but we can explore some stuff because there's no accreditation at risk. There's, you know, this is a free hmm. corporate learning thing. So one of the things that was really fun is maybe more than other individuals who might be creating initiatives from inside 
um, heavily accredited institutional contexts. My favorite explorations with Badger happened, you know, in this kind of creativity bubble mm -hmm. um, that allowed us to be playful. Yeah, I love that. I love that you just pointed out that, um, you know, a lot of times non-traditional learning experiences can be a great place to innovate on what is considered a learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, very, very cool. Um, yeah. So I guess the next question here is, um, can you go into a little bit more detail? And you already did speak to yeah. the modularity, the granularity of the kinds of things that you were recognizing with digital badges. But I guess, could you be a little more specific about the kinds of skills or events um, you know, within the Turner Classic Movies coursework, for example, uh, that you started to award using those digital badges? So yes, so it's always, you know, you know, it depends on how much we're gonna nerd out here, but there's, uh, there's a lot of elements where sometimes I think of it more as like the micro-credentialing side, sometimes it's like a pure badging side. So let me see if I can just pull out a few examples because there was a lot of different ways that I was playing with badging. The first one was when you have a free course that is intended to be geared towards adult learners, um, and also because I was working with Turner Classic Movies, I was also dealing with the notion of a fan community. I also knew my students, regardless of whatever, whatever else were their differences, what was bringing them together into the tent is they all had a love of movies. And so there's an element of fandom here. And what I wanted is I wanted to create, one of the things I was studying that I talked to Wayne Skipper about all the time is can badging make learning more retentive? Is there a way to use badges as a way to encourage adult learners to stay on a learning journey. And this is particularly difficult in a free course because one can argue where's the skin in the game for the learner? They're not paying anything. Absolutely, I am requesting their time to participate in a learning experience that's being crafted uh, through an online learning team that's being sponsored by TCM. But ultimately, you know, with no money in the game, any learner can just drop out saying, I don't have any time for this, this was fun, I don't really see the point. But for the badging initiative, I really wanted to create a sense that this entire learning experience works best if you commit to its entire um, development. Now, part of what is um, fun about this is I wanted to create a set of badges that actually became a collector set. And I, and I can explain what I mean by this. I wanted the badges themselves to have a visual currency that a fan would want to collect all of them or feel they were missing out something on the fandom side. So this was one of the ways I was sugarcoating the educational pill is to appeal to their fandom to say, in order to get all of these badges, which you want because they are basically collectible digital tokens designed by TCM. In order to get those, you have to do this. But the doing of this hopefully is pleasurable learning to get this pleasurable object. So a lot of my theories of learning actually, especially around badging, ask a question about the pleasure and the pleasure not only of the learning event, but the pleasure of the digital token itself is, is having that digital object. Uh, does design matter? Does that object need to be beautiful or just merely utilitarian? Should it just say I completed week three of a free Turner Classic Musics course, or should it be a, a visual object that every time you look at it, you kind of smile going, that's a lovely object, and it reminds me that I completed week three of a free course at TCM. And so that was one of the ways I did that. The other way that I, kind, I, that I did use badges was I really wanted to gamify my MOOC. And by that I mean I do something that's probably only really able to be done in a um, free online course, again, that's outside of strict institutional standards. But in each of the four MOOCs that I taught, the experience was designed for different types of commitment levels from 
the student learners, which I think is something that higher education needs to explore a little bit more because it's for me about having these different layers of how much you want to invest into a structure. And I think we tend to design courses and say, based on say Carnegie uh, seat time rules, which are basically three lecture hours a week, we basically tend to think about courses as 45 hours of content and that 45 hours of content are curated in a semester system by a master, by a subject matter expert who crafts this. I thought about the MOOCs very differently. I wanted the MOOCs to have a minimal engagement level of say a couple hours every week and have it be on a daily basis. And so my MOOCs were built on Monday through Friday, continuous learning experiences, but the minimum engagement you had to do each day was 15 minutes. And that was total time for the day. And obviously if you um, waited until say Thursday, you could do Monday through Thursday in a one hour sit down. But I wanted to encourage as a pedagogical experiment, a daily learning habit. I wanted to build routine. I wanted people to want to open up the MOOC the way that people open up the newspaper every morning over their coffee. I wanted it to be a fixture of their lives because I felt they'd be more highly retentive. And if it was something that you were doing every day, you would get into a learning habit over the course of a course. And so in terms of that, I started to build a course that had baseline information. If this is all you want to learn about Alfred Hitchcock, here's the bare minimum of this week's lesson. Then I had another layer up. If you have time and you want to do more, go to this layer. And I said, if you have time beyond that, go to this layer. But I really kind of, because I was working with adult learners, wanted to have a stratification. And then as I started to get into all of this, I wanted to have games. So we had uh, games offered to the students on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. And each of those games um, had different types of motivational outcomes. I wanted to have different ways that I was breaking out the design of my course and what they were leading towards, like what would be the minimum standard to, a, to obtain the digital token. And so I was trying to look at this um, very much like a watch mechanism with a lot of moving parts that all need to be interconnected to work most effectively. So I'll stop there to hear the next question. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a real joy to hear you um, describe the kinds of coursework that you were uh, developing because as a former educator myself, I'm hearing things like motivation, intrinsic, extrinsic motivation, you know, gamification, uh, the way that you scaffolded and just reconsidered the entire structure and logistics of, of what is a course. And then mm -hmm. thinking about like, where do you have room to uh, have fun? I just yeah. love how much you're using the word fun. Right. And, and part of that, Robert, part of that what um, was one of the things I developed for my courses is on day one, um, or what I actually called day zero. So when you got the invite to the course, I actually had a day zero set up. I actually had a 10 minute survey mm -hmm. of learners that actually taught them how to use the course. And I would say to them, you know, um, if you had the option between watching the professor give a video lecture or reading their lecture notes, what would be your preference? If you, um, you know, how interested are you in playing games related to a film topic? Highly interested or not interested at all? Um, you know, how much time do you want to dedicate to this course? One hour a week or 10 hours a week? And as I got the answers to this, it was just a simple branching Qualtrics survey but then I could then deliver to them a lesson plan saying, based on your preferences, the best way to use this course is likely going to be this. Do this and skip that. You know, like if you have time, obviously, I'd love it if you would circle back, but based on your preferences about the time you want to commit, the way you perceive uh, you learn best. Um, and the other part that I built into all of my courses and it was even funny, I was dealing with it my team, with my team again yesterday. I, I lead a team of instructional designers here at UC Riverside. And we were building a um, faculty portal again with advice on online teaching. And they, I was urging them to try a couple of these things that I'm really 
passionate about. And they're like, but that's redundant. We've already said that. I'm like, yes, but I love redundancy online because you just don't know what the learner's clicking on. Mm -hmm. I don't care that it's redundant because it might be redundant for some, but mm -hmm. it won't be redundant for all because right. people are jumping around. And so I'm one of the educators who believes in redundancy. So part of what's funny is in my course, and I'll just use one for example, I taught a course on the whole career of Alfred Hitchcock. There is redundancy all over the place, but part of that is also based on ideas of spaced learning memory. I like redundancy because in a short course, these courses tended to be between four and six weeks long. Um, you know, I only have so many times that I'm going to be connecting with the student. And so to me, redundancy is not a negative value. It's actually a positive value because it reinforces learning because you're encountering an idea again. And, and so I don't worry about redundancy. And I'll give you an example of how it plays out. I do something that I think I wish, I'm trying to encourage more people to do it because I, I found in, we, we surveyed the heck out of these MOOCs. And so I have a lot of data that these approaches um, did tend to work. But on say a daily basis, so like this 15 minute module, I would release my lecture notes just as PDFs because I'm like, you know, it's wonderful. I, I, I enjoy talking, but some people don't need me to be talking. Just why don't I give them the lecture notes? Then I had a video lecture for people who like that. And then I had a activity because I, 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 I called my way that I built the MOOC, read, watch, do. Read the lecture notes, watch the lecture, and then do an activity based off of a film clip on Alfred Hitchcock that actually forced the application of the lesson. Even in a 15 minute sequence, because my lectures tended to be um, six to seven minutes long with a maximum length of nine minutes. The movie clip in the do part was two minutes long with an, uh, 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 a reflection assignment. And then the lecture notes are just based on how quickly anyone can read to just power scan. But I also added additional information in the notes that filled out a point that I think on video you know, could maybe be an over explanation that wouldn't go as far. But all three of those things had tons of redundancy. And we surveyed, you know, like in Hitchcock, we had almost 18,000 students. We surveyed them. None of them complained about the redundancy. Like, I don't think redundancy is bad. I think people want to make one point and then move on, whereas I tend to like to build um, a structure that has an underlying learning objective of, say, really start to understand the aesthetic premises that Hitchcock works on. And it's like one point that I'm gonna make 58 different ways, but I constantly, because I work learning objectives backwards, I always reframe it as saying, here's another alert where we're gonna learn again how to go beneath the surface of this film to really understand Hitchcock's unique contribution to world cinema style. I say all that because as you start to build all this stuff, what I wanted then the badges to point towards was to get people to get this feeling that they were starting to achieve the overall learning objectives. So I would build this differently for different types of courses, but my film courses, because I was working with um, the films that were being broadcast on a cable network, the most logical sequence for badging was to do it by basically uh, chronological career retrospective. So I taught a course on film noir, but it was basically TCM showed film noir movies in chronological order, the ones that they showed on air. Hitchcock was in chronological order. I did a course on slapstick comedy, which was in chronological order. I also did a course um, that was co-taught by Vanessa Ahmed um, on musicals, which was also in chronological order. So when I was starting to build the badging ideas, I wanted individuals to understand that not only were they going to be delightful visual objects, but they were going to be benchmarks that if you're going to claim that you, are, you have a knowledge of Hitchcock, there were six badges that corresponded to the six decades he made films in. And I really felt, so that course had, uh, uh, the final week of that course, um, I'd have to double check my statistics. I don't know why I don't have them in front of me, but it was something like 60 to 70% of the students returned for the final week of the course 
And I still argue that they returned to get the badge was probably the most motivational driver. And um, I think, you know, the other part was, is like if you had collected all of the other decades of Hitchcock, your collection would just look incomplete. And I also think this ties into this argument I advance frequently that a lot of my studies, because they went through Turner Classic Movies, start to ask the question about what if we started to really leverage the energy of fandom in more and more academic mm -hmm. contexts because um, fans collect things. Why not have them collect learning as much as anything else? Um, so that you know we use the motivational energy of fandom towards getting these secondary elements. And I'll give you a good example of a learning outcome that's non-trivial from say a Hitchcock course. One of my learning objectives that I made very explicit is that if you learn how Alfred Hitchcock's work visually signifies meaning, you will be able to be more highly visually literate and you can also decode a political act. You can decode the nighttime news. You can decode um, reality TV because the same skill set by which you learn how Hitchcock makes meaning is the same decoding device you would learn to be visually literate. So one could actually argue that my courses were secretly public literacy courses to teach people to be more savvy consumers of visual um, information and not just be naive dupes of propaganda. And I think you can learn that through Hitchcock. And I actually put that in my syllabus. So, so you know, there's all these other things. You might think you're just learning about Hitchcock, but how visual images make meaning, obviously it's different politically mm -hmm. in a Hitchcock film, but the decoding of how edits work, how um, right. you know, close-ups work and tugs on emotion, emotional appeals of information. Sure, it's different in North by Northwest than a political ad, but the cognitive thinking load that is, is relational. Yeah, I, um, I mean, this gets at the fact that when you take something like a university level course or a non-traditional course or any kind of course taught by a subject matter expert, um, what we're really looking at here, and I think one of the unique value propositions of something like a granular digital credential or a badge is that um, you can actually start to think about courses as scaffolded skills, really. And media literacy is definitely one of those, thinking about things like production and audience and, and some of these deliberate things that you know, masters of film like Hitchcock do, and that's exactly what makes them a master. This, these are the kinds of things like inside baseball, like what people are looking for when they see you know, uh, an expert, someone who is a master of something in particular. And the ability to recognize those things is really the first step. Um, well, and, and, and where I want to go with that, Robert, sorry to cut no, you it's off. All, it's all good. Is, is let's just stick on this idea of, let's just call it informational literacy. Right. Part of what is part of my challenge here at UC Riverside is there's all these claims in, say, first-year college courses that this history course and this writing course and this course on um, economics or sociology, whatever, you know, the disciplines don't matter. But each of these courses will claim that they have an information literacy piece because we have, you know, general education goals. What always is fascinating is when you start to try to take these courses apart without something like badging, how do you prove it? Because you know, you get an A in history, a B in sociology, a C in the writing program. Okay, great. Are you stronger at visual communication? Are your written skills greater? And we have tended in the 20th century to aggregate these knowledges around the realm of the value of the course. I'm in agreement with you. That's why I kind of jumped in. Yeah. I think our <laughs> new agreement as a society of higher education experts, we have to start to make a different proposition that we got to start measuring the skills more than measuring the courses. Right. Um, and I actually, I just want to point something else out, just taking a few steps back. Yeah. Uh, when you describe that, uh, that zero level to your course, yeah. you know, like that very yeah. first step, one yeah. thing that really jumped out to me is how accessible you were making online coursework. Um, I think that a lot of folks very much take for granted the uh, technical 
uh, prerequisite skills, uh, I like to call them, associated yeah. with uh, engaging with online coursework. And you know, you can create the most beautiful online course in the world, but if yeah. you don't explain the game mechanics of how to engage with that particular course, because this might be a new experience for a lot of folks, um, you know, especially with non-traditional courses, especially with free courses, you know, you might get folks who, you know, did not even finish high school. So they're just not, or sometimes even intimidated by the idea of being surrounded by people in more of an academic setting, uh, even if it's online. So I really wanted to just point out the fact that uh, accessibility and, and equity were really obvious parts of your approach. And I think that that is a model uh, that other people can pay attention to. Um, the last thing I wanted to point out was the personal. No, but, can, can, but, but, but can I jump in on that? Point? Yeah, absolutely. So, so for anyone listening to this podcast, I'm, I'm a big proponent. And when courses are set up properly, they tend to operate as the machine as advertised. Usually when I hear about low graduation rates or when I start to hear about, you know, students aren't passing a course, there can potentially be a mismatch between the student and the grade level and all that, you know, no doubt about it. But in more than a few cases, it sometimes is the result of bad design, that the reasons why students are stumbling and not progressing is we haven't spent enough time establishing the rules of the road. And so one of the things that I do, and I, I share it in a lot of the design work I do in my day job, where I work with faculty and lead workshops all the way, is time spent. So, so for example, I think the weakest way you can start a course is by reading your syllabus. That doesn't, I mean, <laughs> in many ways it's, you know, if your students can't read the syllabus, what's the point? I, I approach it very differently. My first question of students, whether it's a seminar where I have 12 students or a course like Mad About Musicals in which um, in 2018 we had 27,000 students, it's always the same question. Why are you here and what do you want to get out of this experience? What, what's, what is your goal? Um, I can share my goals all day long, but learning won't happen unless my goals and your goals are in some type of alignment. The second thing is I always basically make a very, very standard assumption, which is that no matter how I design a course, we are all individuals and we have this desire to customize learning to suit ourselves. Um, I know how I learn best. I mean, I definitely, for all of my interest in educational technology, and I'm you know, basically everyone thinks of me as a very technically inclined individual, which is fair. I still prefer to take all my notes with a piece of, you know, notebook and paper because it, my training, and while I will use Evernote and some other note-taking tools and stuff, the best way I learn is to write down things in a notebook and reflect on them at the end of the day. And I learn differently when my hands are engaged. I say that by way of, I think we get into all of these different debates about learning styles. And I think they're valid and I've, you know, I know the research. I'm actually more interested in kind of a weirder, softer skill. You know, I'm more interested in, do you like to learn, you know, at 5.30 a.m. or 10 p.m.? Or is your high point for learning at 2 p.m.? You know, that's not a learning style. That's just, I, I want to know your bio really. Um, I'm very interested in, you know, do you learn best by long periods of concentration or are you really like every five minutes you need to be hit with a different stimuli? Do you learn best listening or doing? You know, and these to me are not just learning styles. This isn't just like I'm a kinesthetic learner or I'm a visual learner. I think we got to be building courses, especially when they're online and especially when they're backed by digital currency as a way of tracking learning, what I want are successful outcomes. I really don't give a darn how they get there. The path to me is fundamentally irrelevant. That's one of the reasons why I brought up that redundancy point. I, I, I think if you did a process map of my MOOCs, there could probably be anywhere on order of 10 different ways you could use my modules to get a badge. 
um, there's not just one way, there's at least 10 that we could map out that would equally achieve the end result. And some students, I mean, and I have this data because we surveyed the heck out of these courses. Some individuals would spend 10 hours a week on two hours of content. Other people would spend 30 minutes a week on an hour of content. Right. And, you know, both of these people could earn badges because what, what it was is, you know, we also have to, I was also dealing with adult learners. And this is the part where I think digital badges are fascinating to me is they can maybe start to finally leverage the differential learning that already is contained within a human being. I'll give you an example. I think without prior learning assessments, I really don't know what a letter grade in a course really means. I'll give you an example. If I took a course in high school on say history and we covered world history and I got an A in the course and then I go to college and I literally am sitting in a lecture and I'm like, wait a minute, I've already learned all this stuff. I get another A. Well, what have I really learned? There is no real prior learning assessment. And so maybe I was always gonna get an A because there was just no new information. What thrills me is like in the MOOCs where I would take people who said, I never thought for one day in my life that films are anything other than fluff entertainment. And you've really made me look closer and think more dynamically about the nature of a thing. That to me is learned. That mm. to me says, I'm taking someone and changing the way they're going to see the world. And I think we don't do enough of this in higher education. I think badging is critical to this because I would love increasingly say 10 years from now that educators could get a learning blueprint of their students to say, you know what, you're coming into this economics course really high on the stats side. So with you, I'm going to be working on the major themes. I don't need to teach you stats. Someone else might be like, my God, you, you daydream in economics, but your stat skills are weak. I'm going to work on you to make sure you have the mathematical modeling to get the most out of the course. And that's what I think is the promise of a more personal learning environment. We're not there yet, but I can't see a way to get to personal learning environments without the role of a sophisticated micro-credentialing system, because I think at the heart of this would be a way to track this attainment of knowledges, skills, and um, abilities that are being tracked at the level of a learning outcome, not at the level of a course outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of what you're saying is um, in the realm of personalization. So like personalizing or differentiating instruction. I know all the educators' ears are ringing if they're listening <laughs> to this, that I'm hearing scaffolding, I'm hearing differentiation. I'm hearing that activating prior knowledge is something that's a really valuable uh, way to start a course off. Um, I guess my, my next question for you is, um, you know, because we've hit on so many different yeah. topics, is what advice would you have for someone on the fence about using digital credentials specifically? So even though they might agree with you on the skills alignment, they might agree with you on differentiation and scaffolding and these things, you know, what is it about digital credentials? And you've already spoke yeah. to this a little bit. What is it about that solution uh, that you can uh, maybe win them over uh, yeah. to use digital credentials or badges? So. The, this is where my head's always at on this, Robert. You got to forget about the word badges. You got to forget about the word micro-credentials because none of that, that, that's just jargon that we can return to. But if someone's on the fence and they're not exploring the type of educational opportunities that you and I have been discussing over the course of this podcast, I would say start this way. The way I always start is you know, why, you know, the, the opening question I have with educators are, you know, what are you teaching and why are you teaching it that way? I think there are mindset and philosophical um, disruptors that this moment's bringing to the foreground. But instead of trying to build from the tool, what I try to get people to do is think through what your interaction is as an expert in a field of knowledge and you have a novice who wants to get your information from you, um, what level of instruction, guiding, and mentorship is going to be required for the skill that you possess as the educator 
and that the learner wants, what, what brings those two fingertips together? And to me, when you start to ask these questions profoundly, and not just because some chair of the department says, oh, well, now the accreditation agency is asking us for learning outcomes, so let's just put learning outcomes on every course. Yes, can this be a trivial, nauseating task that just feels like we're checking boxes for people who are not paying attention to authentic teaching? Understood. Not going to debate you on that. But if we start to take our field seriously, my question is not that question. My question is not a trivial learning outcome observation. What are your authentic goals? How are you going to take the information you have and get it to someone who is not you? And if you're starting to build this backwards, you have to at least start to say whether you were trying to teach someone how to be a blacksmith or a computer programmer, how are you gonna do it? Are you going to model the skills? Are you going to tell them the skill and then watch them do it? Are you going to tell them the skill and be happy that some type of secondary assessment is some sort of proof of knowledge? Are you going to simulate it? Are you going to have them read about it, write about it, and then you evaluate their ability, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, I would challenge almost every educator out there that there are all of the secondary and tertiary skills we take for granted. A writing assignment in a psychology class requires the attainment of a ability to write in a certain language that far precedes ever stepping foot into that classroom. Um, students who can successfully do a presentation in a history class are learning presentational skills their whole lifetime, not just when they walk over the threshold into a college classroom. Individuals who need to, um, you know, perform on a test, you know, are dealing with all sorts of things from individuals who have test anxiety to individuals who are experts at the protocols of test taking. And so, you know, there's just this wide swath of the way we educate. To me, the question becomes, how do we want to authenticate and identify these learning moments? And do you have any curiosity as an educator of what skill sets the students are coming into the class with. And I always ask this of educators. I say, would it help you if you actually knew how well or how strong a student was who, as a writer? Um, before they step foot in your class, would you like to know how well they um, you know, um, can um, do math in, say, an economics course? Or how, what, what, you know, um, beyond just getting a C in Chemistry 101 before they go into organic chemistry, do you really want to review that they understand you know, certain types of chemical equations? So I'm a fan of prior learning assessments, but I think what happens with badging is it forces us to rethink through the continuum of teaching from inputs to outputs. And what I get excited about and what I think the future is of this is for educators to start to recognize that we're not in the um, course building and course delivery business. We are in the holistic person development business. And I think if we get into that business, courses are just one of the ways by which we can do this. And I think as we start to build um, humans that are going to be productive citizens of the 21st century, the more we get into understanding the promise of micro-credentials, I think will be for the betterment of our field and for our institutions. But we have too few people who are really delving into what this framework really is. This framework is no different than when, why we had to invent transcripts and registrar offices. And we don't have any debates or, you know, the, the, I mean, I always say it this way. I say, here's my favorite one-liner about badges. How are badges controversial when the least controversial office on your campus is the registrar office? Like, it's not controversial. <laughs> this isn't the center of controversy. What's happening is the way we used to track and store over decades of a person's life, their academic attainments, is shifting because the 21st century is demanding more nuance. Hmm. I think that's just a very different premise. And I understand that we're all trained in a previous paradigm that has worked for about a millennia. And it's tough to buck the system. But 
I would truly say like if people were on the fence, here's how I'd want you to get into it. Start looking at some of these programs that are really using stackable credentials to start to show how skill sets in one um, knowledge domain are flowing into achievements in another knowledge domain. Look at how badges at their most powerful are really being used for um, prerequisite attainment to get into more and more advanced classes. I think corporations are far beyond where colleges are at right now, say on um, Microsoft, the way that they can use badges to get people um, skill sets up on um, software certifications is because they have trust that this badge means you're qualified to go to the next and to the next and to the next. And I think the rigor that Microsoft has demanded of their badging project is what same type of rigor I wish higher education would start to demand mm. because we're in similar businesses. I want to know definitively before a student graduates that for their investment of time and treasure into this university environment that they're walking forward with the skill sets that will make them a productive citizen until the day uh, and, 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 and contributor to the workforce until the day they die. That's the business we should be in. And so I don't get too obsessed about like um, some of these other matters. And so ultimately, to long story short, you know, I think individuals need to familiarize themselves with what badging opportunities are already out there and look at them with a fresh, even skeptical mind. Hmm. But I think if you really started to look at badging authentically, I think there's a lot of there there and that if our best minds really started to work on it and we started to incorporate it, into our institutional settings, we would really start to see some significant benefits over time from such an investment. Right. Wow. Uh, I agree with you on all of that. <laughs> I, um, and it's a real joy to hear you talk about teaching holistically. I think um, there's all this pressure uh, from the outside to uh, make the kind of learning that happens within institutions or outside of institutions just any academic setting, there's this push to make it more workforce or 24th century appropriate. But um, at the same time, you know, no one has defined that. So like, what does that mean? And it keeps changing, you know, like, like my title, digital credentialing evangelist, for example, that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so while I was in school, it's not like I was studying for the job I have now. I just happened to be able to do this job, whatever it's called, because of the requisite skills that I've collected, both in my institutional and academic settings and non-academic settings. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and on that point, you know, I agree. I, I don't think these visions are mutually exclusive. I mean, mm -hmm. if you really want to hear me be the contrarian, <laughs> um, where no one in America is making this argument <laughs> is I actually think, uh, you know, I'll just leave it as a provocation for others in the audience, but I actually think something like um, digital pathways where we're credentialing these skills that we have always valued, communication, writing, um, collaboration, teamwork, whatever it is, this is one of the ways to re-engage the liberal arts education at mass. This is not just a STEM computer science thing. I think the basic skills of how to be a better citizen value, the, the values laden in that, badging has as much to contribute to that as it would be to uh, Microsoft software certification. I think because it's technological and it's so different from how hum humanists have previously worked a holistic um, angle um, on their, um, you know, the, the holistic angle on their education of their students. It's not intuitive that that might be the case, but I would argue it really is because we really have a deficit of these um, skills that make people better people, more emotionally grounded people, more psychologically sophisticated people, more mm. civically minded people. And right. no one's going to convince me that those are skills you solely learn in the classroom. That's why I wanted to jump in on this point. The right. hybridity point is valuable because badging could start to track both inside and outside the classroom, formal and informal, um, transcriptable and non-transcriptable. But that ledger, that chain of uh, knowledges 
I think would really help, help to say that probably somewhere in those chains, I'd probably see why you became a digital evangelist because <laughs> there'd probably, I, I don't think you studied one thing like this. The, 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 on some level, there probably would be some sort of evolutionary clue that this type of position would be better suited for you. I'm sure there's always an exception, but I would think that that'd be the rule. Yeah, and I always think back to my my days as a as a Boy Scout. You know, while I was in middle school and high school, I was in Boy Scouts, and I was like regularly voted as the senior patrol leader. And it wasn't because I was better than anybody else at anything. It was just because I had the best line of communication with uh, the scoutmaster. You know, so I was I was the obvious choice if you wanted to you know, have like a leadership change or some kind of thing. Like I, I was that diplomat and yeah. those skills were largely invisible to my teachers, uh, you know, during this, during the school week. Um, some teachers picked up on it. Um, but a lot of teachers, uh, I kind of sit back, I read, I'm quiet, you know, they don't really see that. So I can see how, um, for a lot of folks, uh, micro credentials or digital badges or whatever you want to call them, uh, yeah. Because I think you're right. I think the name people get caught up in the in the terminology, the vernacular of it. But really, it's just making it's recognizing uh, skills and competencies that were invisible and making yes. those things visible to people broadly. Um, yep. So the, uh, the the last question I have for you here is, uh, what are your next steps? So my next steps are multiple. Um, I'm definitely looking at some very different ways to organize um, the college experience over the next uh, decade. Um, and I, I can say it this way, UC Riverside is growing. Um, we don't have the same contraction problems as maybe some other institutions. We actually have to build for aggressive growth because we're, going, we're 25,000 undergrads right now, but we're hoping to be at 35,000 undergrads by 2035. So we're going to be on ramping 10,000 more students. What becomes interesting to me is that we have to start making college Gen Z ready. We, um, the part that becomes interesting to me is that every student who is going to enroll in UC Riverside in 2035, every student who's going to be a student at UC Riverside in 2035 is already on this planet. They're three years old. They are exploring and seeing all of this stuff right now. They have always been born into a world that has micro-credentials. They don't know any different um, because they're three years old right now. And when they're in their um, first kindergartens and middle schools, they will be doing gamified projects. They will be learning on their phones. They will be dealing with a universe that's always had Googles and iPhones and you know rockets that can land um reland on the planet earth they're just they're used to all this stuff they will be the first generation that has never just contemplated ai but have experienced it they you know will have only understood the gig economy there was no other economy that, uh, that the gig economy was replacing they will always believe that doordash and amazon and cisco were eternal corporations that go back five thousand years um, you know, that the iPhone is a permanent fixture of our lives, not just something that showed up in the last 12 years of our lives. I mean, all these things are just really said to this extent that what's next is we've got to build and rebuild higher education for Gen Z. The millennials right now are the last analog to digital conversion uh, cohort. And when they finally pass through towards the tail end of this decade, the students coming in in 2030 know no better. They will always know digital badges. They will always know AI. They will always know online learning. They will always know the internet as a fixture of their lives. They will, they will be having a Facebook account, you know, from their, well, when they're eligible, you know, but, but, you know, they'll always be on some form of social media from the very, very earliest stage of their lives. So it's a different world we're building for them. And so what's next for me is it's incumbent on the research and development side of my operations to really do authentic thought experiments of what this 
universe looks like and how we're going to have to adjust for them and what type of things we're gonna do. And I think at the core of all this really will be, um, badging will be the um, way that we are going to, I, I predict badging will be the dominant assessment tool um, in 10 years. I, I think it'll supplant the transcript. Um, as we, I think it's, its disruptive potential is um, in an aggressive um, Gardner hype cycle would be 10 years, but I definitely think within 15 years, hmm. um, the, 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 the nature of the traditional K-12 to post the, the traditional secondary to post-secondary credential will be fundamentally and profoundly reordered and altered by 2035. So that's what I'm working on. I'm working on a very long swath of mm. history, but I think too few of us are paying attention that it's really the millennials we're teaching right now are the last transitional cohort. The next cohort is born digital and mm. was always born digital and knows nothing else. Well, I think that's uh, an amazing place to, um, to end our conversation here. In our last minute, um, is there anybody that you would like to shout out, programs uh, you'd like to mention? You know, if uh, folks have been captivated and have been intrigued by some of the points you've made during our conversation today, are there any follow-up resources or programs or things that they might be interested in? Well, I definitely think, you know, you can get pretty far by just researching badges online. Um, you know, the, I, I definitely, you know, am a fan of Badger Pathways because I've used it um, since, I've used Badger since the day it was invented, but I really like the product and, but, but if you don't want to just do Badger Pathways, there are other options out there. But I really think what's important is I think instead of thinking about it from the product side is to really think about it from the use cases. And um, EduCause is a good resource for some information on badging. Um, there's also just, you know, um, you know, dig, you know, do some Google searches on, and I think you'll uncover a lot of very interesting experiments because there's a lot of research universities and consortium that, um, consortia that have really been looking authentically in the micro-credentialing. And I think it's really having its moment now um, where more and more individuals are interested in it. But in terms of shout outs, I just think, you know, it's just too still uh, a big and woolly world out there. I don't think there's any definitive answers out there. I think just try to really educate yourself because it, it, we need more people at more institutions fighting for micro-credentialing because it really requires the whole village of a university. So like in my most recent efforts, I'm bringing together a coalition that starts to involve, you know, IT, you know, information technology and the registrar and deans and, um, um, you know, the, the dean of undergraduate education because these are profound shifts that far exceed the tool. And we need more people making the cases on more camp campuses that we're going to be increasingly interested in tracking the learning objectives that are beneath all of our courses as much as we're tracking the attainment of all of our courses. I also think it can start to work in profound ways to improving four-year graduation rates. I think it helps us more quickly remediate a student who might be underserved by the university right now because we'd have just more information about maybe some of the areas <laughs> where they need reinforcement, because right now we tend to, with the struggling students, they go to the learning center or go to the writing center, but with greater and greater granularity, we might be able to target that it's not a writing problem. It might be just, you know, um, some other issue. And that's, that's what, I, what, what, what is part of the exciting promise. So I don't have any specific shout out because I think everyone should just get involved and just go out and get knowledgeable and one of the ways I learn best, my, my, my pro tip is I love to just see what works and take it apart. I'm a backwards engineer. If I see a badging program I like, I like to just take it apart and see like what made it tick. Um, 
And so, um, and that's usually where I get some interesting ideas is usually just taking something else apart. I'm like, you know, I maybe do that a little differently and stuff like that. But, but that would be my main thing is there's a lot of information out there, but don't stop until you feel you have a intuitive understanding of badging. Well, with that, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, thank you to everyone who listened to this episode of our podcast here. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate the time, Robert. This has been Micro-Credentialism, bite-sized stories from the world of digital badges with me, Rob Bajer, Digital Credentialing Evangelist for Badger at Concentric Sky. Thanks for tuning in.